I was sitting, sit, or I was laying down in bed, getting ready to go night-night. Had my little uh, full-length nightgown on down to my ankles, little nightcap. Mm-hmm. My little candle on the candle holder. Your uh, CPAP. Gold, gold-leafed, exactly. <laughs> Clicked that on, uh, moved the mask to the side, blew out the candle. <laughs> laid my sweet head on my soft pillow and then bolted upright and realized, I don't think last week we even explained like how inductors cause a magnetic flux. <laughs> and that's we my ex- bad. We explained <laughs> it in the title. It's in the title. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to describe real quick um, the the thing that we were talking about with like the wire, um, whenever you run an, a current through a wire and it has a magnetic field go around it. The magnetic field is like perpendicular to the direction of the wire. Right. So it's almost like a cross section of the wire Mm -hmm. and it's going in like a circle around the wire. Okay. So then whenever you take a wire and you loop it in a coil, like a spring thing, then the direction that the the magnetic field is going is still circular around that, except it's now elongated um, because of the coil and the magnetic field flows. You can think through like through the middle, depending on the direction that the current is going through the middle of the coil Mm -hmm. and then out back around the outside of the coil. And so that is how the magnetic field is intensified and, directed at something else and then when you have the ac the change of that magnetic field pulsing back and forth is what causes the current in the other thing or the the electrons and atoms in whatever it is like if you're heating it up to wiggle around so and, there, that's and right and there's like a mathematical correlation to how many coils of that wire you do to how intense you can create the magnetic field so you can make lots of coils or you can just wrap it around once and it's not going to be very strong you know depending on what you're trying to get out of it or how and how tightly it's coiled together versus how loosely it's coiled together can also change the dynamics of that magnetic field as you send alternating current through those wires yes so that was um I needed to get that out of my system. Um, <laughs> well, I needed good. to do that before I kill myself with staph infection. Yeah, don't do that. I've, <laughs> I've got like these scabs on me, but I've been working out still. And I'm like, okay, well. Is, you got staph from the stingray, you think? No, whenever I beefed it on the skateboard oh, last yeah, week. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You had a Ankle's cute, doing fine. Had a cute fall down moment. Yep, right in front of the guy. It was absolutely blazed did i tell you about him yeah yeah okay. i don't think on the podcast but yeah you told me <laughs> he just looks up and goes as i'm sliding along the pavement he goes you chilling <laughs> no <laughs> i'm not chilling <laughs> did you uh did you go and see when your last tetanus shot was just in case you got like uh some old rusty metal that scraped you that was part of the asphalt or anything uh no you're not getting any lockjaw. not yet although with my ear and then my doctor's like yeah you got moderate <clears throat> moderate tmj i'm like well 
My orthodontist told me he was giving me braces to get rid of, like, to prevent TMJ. And this whole he time asked, you've just had tetanus, this bad tetanus infection. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. That would all make sense. The, the doctor told me, he was like, or he asked, uh, have you been going to physical therapy for your TMJ? Like, I didn't know I had TMJ. What? <laughs> does does, pod, does podcasting count as physical therapy for TMJ because I'm moving my <laughs> jaw? <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering, does like the clamp of the headphones hurt? I'm not supposed to wear earbuds anymore, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Just. Well, you're the young one on the podcast, so that's good. You're, yeah, you're yeah. our youthful representation, so glad you're you're holding <laughs> it together. Barely. Yeah, with a bunch of duct tape. What's never ending to find a beginning that came before everything. Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the Well, uh, speaking of electromagnetism, um, it's also important in, in this episode when we talk about some, uh, there's been a few uh, recently published studies in the last, I don't know, nine months about some cutting edge stuff in the neuroscience world. And it ties back to things we talked about almost two years ago now in the brain episodes. Um, Jeez. But... Um, the electromagnetism sort of relevancy here is that uh, when you talk about um, any kind of brain implant like uh, that you would implant into your into your brain to augment some sort of perceived part of your reality, whether it's because you are trying to overcome some sort of disability or uh, or you're in some weird future sci-fi application where you're like trying to augment yourself to become like AI integrated or something like that. The way that those things work is by mapping the electromagnetic signals that your neurons give off. So your neurons firing give off the same electromagnetic signature as we just talked about in induction. Um, you are operating on electricity in your brain. And as we talked about, electricity is magnetism. And you give off an electromagnetic signature from all of those neurons firing. And then you can create an electrode that you implant onto the surface of the cortex that then, through the little electrodes, senses the changes in those electromagnetic currents in a specific region of the brain can map those varying changes of frequency and duration and then put that into software that says that can decode that and say oh whenever these we get the electromagnetic signal in this direction that means this guy is trying to move his hand his left hand and if they if we get it this way it means he's trying to move his 
his forearm. And so you can slowly map those things over time by just measuring the electromagnetic direction of the signal that is coming off of your own neuron synapse firing in your brain by using electrodes that just detect that electric signal. And then you put that into a computer and it can tell you through the software what what the brain is actually doing. Um, So it's pretty cool that the same thing that we've talked about, just electromagnetism going all the way back to Faraday, is the essential principle that you operate on as a living being inside your head in a total biologic atmosphere. It's not... This is not some sort of artificially generated thing outside of you that's making it. You make the electricity. It's inside your body, and that's how you power yourself on the daily basis. You know, <clears throat> it really makes you think of uh, uh, the predeterministic nature of the universe that, like, okay, so you can map that part of your brain that's, like, trying to move your left arm. Um, what is the part of the brain that is telling that part of the brain it wants to move the left arm like (laughs) like this is just like yeah no these atoms are just flying around and that happens to be the thing that coincides with the rest of the universe (laughs) yeah and the implications of this stuff um, when you step back from it is very much oh man if the brain like we talked about in the old in the brain episodes the brain is this sort of isolated thing completely devoid of being able to sense the world it so it has to project the world using your body to try to give it the stimulus to understand what's going on and that also means then if the brain is a functioning machine that you could theoretically remove the brain from the body and put it in anything else that could also ambulate and then it could figure out a way to explore the world using that new body machine it doesn't have to be your physical body it could be a robot body it could be some other type of thing it could be a virtual body that's in the web that you are your brain is now controlling and your brain would still have a one uh, singular sort of experience of oneness. This You'd still have this very egocentric type of control over that thing as if it was your body, even if it's not actually the biological body you were born with. Yeah, I, I'm wondering about... Um what the, the the corporatist take would be on that you're just walking across the street and then suddenly a pop-up ad like your robot body stops and then you just wake up and you're smashed by a bus um, yeah. you, you can't you don't get to use your body until you up, upgrade your terms of service <laughs> right exactly so all the your body just shuts down until you've done, done your update and agreed to the new terms of service i don't want to listen to you too <laughs> um yeah the it, but the strange thing about the brain is like again that that's like where it starts to get weird because if you could imagine like you know uploading your Uploading to a singularity or something like that. Yeah, uploading your consciousness um, to a computer. 
So then that's where it's it gets tricky because then if you're uploading a consciousness like you have an AI look at your brain and it understands the entire workings of it and your personality and everything and then puts that into some sort of simulation that's not that's not me even though that would say it's me right but if you were to just map your brain and then connect it to a singularity sort of thing then okay possibly now when does the brain start breaking down and all this kind of stuff and yeah you that's got a short circuit that's the other thing is uh so this experiment started um back in 2002 it's called BrainGate and um the modern version of it is now BrainGate 2 um and that's been going on since 2010 or 2009 i believe but the original idea was and I don't know, you might have remembered some of the pop PopSci uh, articles about this from 20 years ago, but it was like an actual giant bed of electrodes that was literally plugged into the top of your skull, like Matrix style. And so you had this giant like electrode bed with tons of cables like coming out of the top of your skull. And then those things were then trying to map like different motor functions through your cortex to to uh, to help people who were, you know, paralyzed or had uh, who had lost a limb be able to control either like a mouse cursor on a screen to then navigate that to be able to communicate or to like move a robotic arm to be able to like pick up an apple for because they don't have an arm anymore, that type of stuff. Um, and that was pretty cool because the, there's the first video I remember seeing on it was they were doing it with monkeys and they were showing how like they would block off the monkey so the monkey couldn't see one of its arms and then they would have the robot arm sort of be in place to where the monkey when it would look it would think that the robot arm was the arm that they had tied behind the monkey's back. And since the monkey was plugged into the brain gate electrodes, um, whenever the monkey would think about moving the arm that was tied behind its back, the robotic arm would move. And because the monkey could see the robotic arm move, it got really good at manipulating that as if it was its own arm because it had the visual confirmation that, oh, this is my arm. And so when it could look at and see it, and then also think about moving it. Then he got really good at dexterity and stuff by moving around that robotic arm. And then, it, you know, they did this with humans. And so it's been in the works for a while. The downsides to it is that you are only limited to the survivability of those electrodes that they have plugged into your brain. And any time that... Um, these things start to deteriorate, which at the time when they were starting this, the lifespan of these electrodes is only like 10 years tops. Um, to do another surgery to get them reinstalled is kind of risky because, you know, you're opening the brain case and you're going to expose it to lots of bacteria in the hospital and other types of things. So um, the limitations of the technology were not about your the patient's brains deteriorating or their abilities deteriorating the limitations were the actual cables and electrodes and wires and technology that was fused into their brains 
failing over time, just like any type of machinery fails over time. So the sort of future version of this, the current version of this is now they, in 2021, they have fully developed proof of concept, completely wireless electrode technology. So now no longer is it a giant bank of electrodes plugged into your head, matrix style with cables coming out of your skull. Now it's just a little bitty chip that gets implanted directly on the part of your cortex that is most closely associated with your motor functions. And then it communicates wirelessly with the computer and the software and everything. So more robust, more longer lifespan for that and a much less invasive type of surgery to implant it. And if you needed to replace it, much less invasive to, to fix that. Um, so the big development that happened in the summer of last year was they've been studying people that are basically not totally comatose or in a vegetative state, but people that are paralyzed or have lost their ability of movement from like their neck down or even in some cases like their eyeballs down. Um, and... Uh, the idea would be that these people have lost the ability to communicate with loved ones and they're not in a coma. So we know that they're there and we know they're aware and we know they can hear us. They just have lost, they have no ability anymore to actually verbalize or even through modern technology, you know, like uh, Stephen Hawking type of eye scan technology and other things, they don't have even that ability to navigate, to um, express themselves. And the study revealed in uh, 2021, this guy who was um, totally paralyzed, they mapped his brain with these electrodes and um, they had been doing this study previously where it was um, basically imagining moving a cursor on a screen and then you could move that cursor and like select a word or select a letter and then slowly like type out what you wanted to say. But that was very painfully slow. And so it, it was effective. Um, but the ability to really like, um, communicate in like, in the way that people speak or to really be able to express yourself in a moment's notice, like if you need to tell somebody something, that there's a significant limitation to the existing types of technology. So what they were trying to do is how can you extrapolate sort of extemporaneous thought into a verbal or some type of written communication that everyone can understand. And um, what they did was when they mapped the electromagnetic signals on the motor functions outside the cortex of this individual... Um, they had him, instead of trying to move a cursor with his mind, they had him go back through the process of what it was like to write letters with his hand. So like, just like your handwriting, go through the alphabet, write, write all the letters you can. And over time, they calibrated the system based upon those slight variations in the electromagnetic signals. And the software understood, oh, he's directly writing all of the letters in the alphabet. And he got better and better at it, um, like to the point where he's up over like a hundred characters a minute with his ability to handwrite in his mind. 
And when he's able to handwrite in his mind, then he's the computer can just tell that he's imagining writing letters and words with his hand. And then it can tell through the software basically extemporaneous conversation. It's no longer like I have a few phrases I can pick and choose from like I'm hungry or like scratch my face. <laughs> it's it's like <laughs> right. he can actually have a conversation, specifically say what he wants, all that type of stuff. And um, so that that's kind of been the huge breakthrough. Um, and the idea that these uh, brain chips, you know, there's been the people talking about Elon Musk and his wanting to do brain chips and all that type of stuff. This is like the real application. And this is all been, this is done, um, here, here at Stanford. Uh, the project was headed up by David Eagleman and some other neuroscientists. And, you know, we've talked about David Eagleman before, cause he's the guy who came up with the, uh, different ways that deaf people can communicate through, vibration on their wrists and stuff like that so they can hear um, sound um, different ways of like modifying your senses so that you can trick your brain into taking in information using other senses so that you can uh, turn sound into vision or turn vision into sound and things like that um, so this is just sort of uh, the next step in that type of brain modification and augmentation and I don't know. I th- I just thought it was pretty amazing that instead the the initial approach being like let's let's do this very technologically uh, right, yeah. faceted way of approaching this like typing out an email on a keyboard and then realizing well the brain that's not like natural for the motor functions of the brain that we're mapping but handwriting is like a natural motor function of the brain because you've did it ever since you were young and like you can actually see the mapping in the brain of like when you're making the curly cue for a cue versus the curly cue the opposite way for a p and all of that type of stuff so that yeah, makes the, yeah go ahead well just the 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 difference between the two is so stark when you really think about what is the interface that the person is imagining if you're thinking of a cursor like the the um accuracy of the cursor uh like interface was not very good Mm -mm. because that means you have to imagine moving a cursor from its location to a specific letter and then stopping there and then thinking of clicking and that's just in a straight line so the ai has to understand there you know if you're thinking about like what is the delay or whatever in the communication between the chip to the computer if there's like a few milliseconds of delay then possibly it goes past that letter because it's just going in a straight line mm-hmm. and it knows it's going in a straight line and then it stops at some point so you're hitting the wrong letter um or you're not holding the click long enough because you're trying to get this thought out Whereas handwriting, and in the study, they have like the example of what the letters would look like. That's that's what's so great about this, that they understood the complexity of letters is what makes it easier for AI to understand. Mm-hmm. Because the like they mapped it where it understands the trajectory of where you're going to write. It understands 
the speed changes. You know, whenever you're like starting out an A, the circular part is much slower than the tail. Right, right. But they're able to understand that is different than the Q because <clears throat> you're just going to, you're wisping away the, the last part of the A versus going down to make sure that the the Q line is there and prominent enough. So it's it's one of those things where it it takes re- really smart people to understand, no, trying to make this as simple as possible, go straight, click, is actually way more complex. It's not than the way your brain works. Complex yeah. system. <clears throat> yeah, it, which is amazing because it's like um, your brain takes complex pattern. Your brain is made to understand complex patterns. So if you just give it something simple, it's like it freaks out. It reminds <laughs> me. I don't know if you've seen the video of a. Uh, you know, like those kids' toys where it's different size shapes and then they the different size holes or yeah. different shaped holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you put the square in the square and then the bridge looking one in the bridge. There's like that video where, um, and it's kind of funny, but it does like cause a little tiny bit of anxiety watching it where somebody just shows all of the shapes are the same size as the square so they just put all of the shapes right, through right, the square right. hole yeah. the circle fits in the square hole the star shape fits in the square hole it all fits in the square hole <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of that where like your brain is like no i need the complex patterns i don't need this more simplified um so yeah it's kind of uh, i love looking at like the numbers too of of like how quickly the writing was mm-hmm. done like the cursor interface, um, the same patient that did this handwriting study was in the cursor interface study um, a few years ago. And that person set the record for uh, like writing sentences out. And with the cursor interface, it was 40 characters per minute, um, which is slow. a fairly slow yeah. Yeah, typing speed. Um, the next fastest person uh wrote like extemporaneously so it was choosing whatever word they wanted it wasn't it wasn't following like you know the brown fox jumps over whatever and that person only wrote at 24.4 characters per minute and the mistake rate is incredibly high yeah the error rate is like what was it something like 38 percent or something higher than that i think yeah i uh it was super high and it's i mean that's the thing. It was about too these. high to to apply the what you have on your cell phone, t- where it can predict your text and say, "Oh yeah, he's just a really bad typer," and correct all of your mistakes as you're just like quickly typing texts. There were too many mistakes in the uh, in the cursor function for that type of software to correct for the error rate. Yeah, <laughs> my sister sent me this like tweet from the other day that uh, this person was like falling asleep texting his fiance or whatever and their cat laid like bare stomach on his phone and kept sending text messages that made his fiance think that he was having an aneurysm because it was just like <laughs> mm, mm, and then it just goes brain hurt like, why would you why would you text me your guttural sounds of of having a stroke sir <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but so yeah, the, so we all know the uh, the 
autocorrect is not great. And can you imagine how frustrating it would be uh, for it to... What the... <laughs> Totoro laid down and like hit the door stopper thing. No. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, can you imagine how frustrating it would be to try and punctuate your sentence and it keeps saying duck? Right, right, um, right. But anyways, the... The handwriting one, after going through and like teaching the AI what the motion is, which only took like the this person repeated each letter 10 times. Mm -hmm. And that's enough for the AI to understand the neural signals. Right. Because like you said, it's every single one is diverse enough that you're not. Uh, you're not cross-pollinating the information by having everything be a very similar stimulus or input. Yeah, and it's not the same thing as like, like you remember the Palm Pilot, how they came up with graffiti? Yeah, yeah, where you weren't actually writing words, you're just kind of like slashing in different angles and it would be like, oh yeah, that's a D. Oh no, that's a Z. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's It's not that. It's like the actual letter. Like they... They told the person, imagine you've got like, you know, a big pen on a legal pad and just write out each word like one after the other. And not so you're not like, you know, trying to write really tiny mm -mm. Uh, to make your, you know, third grade teacher mad. It's it's just writing out the letters and it only takes about 10 times for the AI to understand what the letter is. And after practicing, the person got up to uh 90 characters per minute with 94.1% raw accuracy yeah and then with like a general purpose autocorrect so just the type that we have in our cell phones it was 99% accurate um and the text typing speed of people around the same age group is 115 characters per minute so it's like 25 characters slower but that's you're still getting so much more out. That's like 18 words a minute. Right. And just, and, or just imagine the, the use that, so obviously the, the immediate use is paralyzed people, people who are going through ALS that are slowly losing their functionality, slowly losing their ability to speak or whatever. Obviously those are great applications for this, but think of the applications for able-bodied people who would have the, who could have this type of communication capability just implanted in your head instead of you having to constantly write and type out all of these things. This is also, this is not necessarily just a feature that's, oh yeah, this is a great little tool, accessibility tool for disabled people. I can yeah. definitely see far reaching applications beyond just like, oh man, it's not as bad to have ALS now. No, it still sucks to have ALS, but you know we've got other ways of of utilizing these tools, which was that's that's sort of the uh, overarching deal of the whole thing. And then of course you find out that uh, yeah, it's like the the funding for all of this research comes partially from the federal government and the Defense Department and the Veterans <laughs> Affairs Department and stuff like that. Yeah. So you're like, yeah, you know, because we're getting people maimed in wars all the time. We would love to have like a little augmentation device so that they can continue to communicate with their families. Um. <laughs> it, the, the thing that I wonder, though, about like broad application. So first off, uh, I love the concept of inclusive design where you 
you can design things to address a need, but then it becomes uh, more broadly applied. Like mm-hmm. an example would be something that if you create something so that somebody who had an arm amputated and only had one arm available to use, um, if you created something that it was easier for a one-armed like person to operate, I'm not sure what it would be, I, you know, can opener or something like that. It then applies to, um, you know, an elderly person who just is weaker mm-hmm. in one arm or it applies to somebody holding like a baby, like in the kitchen. Like, you know, it, yeah. those things are much more far reaching because you start to address a need. So, yeah, it is cool that it makes um, certain diseases that uh, don't have treatments yet or cures or you know, whatever you could consider or possibly don't have a cure as a possibility. Um, it applies to them and makes it much more bearable. I think that's probably the most frustrating thing. Like um, that's probably the most frustrating thing of having something like ALS. And of course I'm speaking way out of turn here, but mm. it would be the losing the ability to communicate because your brain is still able to have all of those thoughts. Right. Um, it's probably, there's probably worse aspects to it. Like if you've got kids or something like, you know, um, that's probably terrible, but, but that was the big, that was the other big function of the study is, um, not only is like the motor functions that you can map with these things, um, important. And when you, um, assess language rather than trying to do it in an abstract way, like you would do on a computer, but turning it into a motor function, you're able to extract that information much more readily from the brain but also to have the ability hold on i'm i i'm trying to put this together the way i want without without offending anybody (laughs) i'm stepping away from the microphone no no no. i I had i had a great line of thought and then i was like wait maybe i shouldn't say it (laughs) No, go ahead. Go ahead with something else. I, I lost my train okay. of thought. <laughs> um, so the the other thing that was pretty interesting about it too is, so they they reach like ninety characters per minute um, speed with you know like like copying sentences or something like that. Uh, but then you think, okay, well, what about communication? The the open ended question communication speed was like seventy three point eight characters per uh, minute so that's like that's not a bad speed i would think to be able to communicate and possibly it can get higher you know like the Mm -hmm. that is like that is like 15 words uh per minute on average and that's the open-ended questions thing normal handwriting like with pen and paper is like 20 words per minute. Yeah. Um, And then if you start to think, okay, well, we have this handwriting motion down. Well, speaking is also using different muscles to move things, which means there's signals going to that. We speak at 125 words per minute. So is there a way to start mapping like instead of using a cursor, is there a way to start mapping speech? And so that's that's kind of like the way that these successive studies 
uh, can start to build upon each other. It's like, okay, well, now we know an AI can learn the signals your brain is sending for hand motions. Are there other motions that are extremely fine-tuned but are things that are like innate almost mm-hmm. to to the human brain well so and it's it's very cool yeah when it com- and when it comes to motion and th- this is kind of what i was going to say the the evidence is such that the brain has the motion capabilities regardless of your f- body's physical capabilities so like if you really developed as an incredible ability as like a professional athlete in your 20s like the hand-eye coordination to hit 60 home runs a season in major league baseball or something like that just because you get older and you can't do it anymore does not mean that your brain can't do it anymore your brain is still capable of firing the exact same as it did when you were 20 years old in your prime. The thing that has failed you is your body. And the issue there then becomes like, well, you know, we care for all these old people and we're worried about their end of life care and all that type of stuff. But if we can start to untangle the... uh trappings and physical limitations of a deteriorating body and deteriorating organs inside of this body the brain can still do those things with the same level of accuracy and intensity if if it just had the if it just had the vessel to still pull it off it's not that your brain deteriorated in any way or that you lost lost a step in your mind or that you you lost the ability to have hand-eye coordination or something like that. Those things are not a failure, a failure of your brain. Um, and, but then those things have far reaching applications so that when it comes to like the second study from Germany that we researched about the guy who was totally locked in state, vegetative state, almost not, you know, he was basically, you know, Terry Schiavo type of situation, like, is the correct thing to do here, pull the plug? Or are we looking at a person who's just trapped inside of a unresponsive vessel, but their brain works perfectly and we just can't know if their brain's working perfectly type of thing. And this study in Germany, which is under some controversy, showed that this, they were able to basically create a on-off, yes-no type of confirmation of communication between um, a implant, brain implant that was tracking um, the motion of eye movement, even though this guy couldn't move his eyes. He couldn't move his eyes. He can't blink his eyes. Um, in his mind, they calibrated if he could raise his eye level up versus raising his eye level down and that would correspond to a pitch that was being projected into his ears and so if as he raised the eye his eye level up it would raise the pitch to match the like they would give him a pitch that he was supposed to target 
And then he would have the pitch in his head and he would have to, in his mind, use his imaginary eye movement to raise that pitch to match the desired pitch or to lower the pitch to match the desired pitch. And once they did that, they were able to basically calibrate that as like an up-down. So now you have a binary way of communicating. You can ask yes-no questions. You can do certain things like that. And then once you extrapolate off that, then you can use that eye movement then to do the things like uh, move a cursor to grab a specific selected set of letters and then build a word out of those selected set of letters. Now, this specific individual, he had, before he had completely gone into a locked-in state, he had sort of the Stephen Hawking setup where he was able to move his eyes around on a screen, and that's the way that he used to communicate with his family, by selecting those groups of words. So he had already had a lot of practice of doing that method, and then when he lost his eye movement, it was the brain implantation was a way of being like, okay, he already has this skill. He just can't actually physically do it with his body anymore, but his brain has this skill. So if we can figure out a way to just map the motions of that skill in his brain, we can give him that ability again, even though he can't actually move his eyes and look at a screen anymore. So now he's like imaginarily moving a cursor around on a screen. It's, it's just an, in, in the abstract with his head, the, uh, the, it was really effective in the very beginning stages and he was able to actually communicate with his family or they say he was able to communicate with his family that he wanted like pea soup and these different cravings and things like that but over a few months it deteriorated and now he can no longer communicate using the same methodology and they believe that it's not because he lost the functionality of his brain they believe it is a deterioration of the electrodes in the technology They've reached the end of their shelf life. And so while he's still able to do the trick in his imagination, they just aren't able to as adeptively read those electromagnetic signals any longer. And the risk would be, do we open him back up and plug him in and, you know, do surgery that would cause maybe death because he's got like, we'd have to open him up on his entire brain case in order to get to it. Or do we just you know, kind of let him go. Um, and the researchers are now like taking care of that guy full time. But the other thing is that the researchers, um, burn bomb and hold on real quick. So if I was a researcher, I feel like once you establish normal, like levels of communication, maybe ask the guy if he would want, like, that's what like blew my mind is they, He's been like doing these studies and stuff like that, right? Like mm-hmm. he's he's been in contact with researchers on ALS and everything. Um but they to do this like one implant that they had, they had like the uh not not guardians, like legal guard whatever, the legal representation of him, mm-hmm. like probably family yes, or something family. like that, uh decide to do the implant. But you could ask the guy, like, just ask him, would you, you know, maybe somebody knows me well enough, like, Miho would be like, yeah, he would want to keep doing this stuff. But I don't know, like, just 
maybe ask me, you know. Right, right. <laughs> if like, I would does, like does, to continue If you had already thing. signed over power of attorney in the case that you can no longer communicate to like your family and then all of a sudden you get the communication capability back for at least for like one month, <laughs> right. do, do you suddenly get power of attorney back <laughs> to be like, no, no, wait, 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 guys, <laughs> you guys have been fucking this up. <laughs> Please. <laughs> How are my apes doing? <laughs> yeah. Why, why'd you sell all my NFTs? The thing that I found very interesting before we get into like the Neil's uh, bomb, whatever. Um, so they, what was weird about this study is they first started trying to track like passive movements, mm-hmm. like moving his right fingers, thumb, wrist. And then they tried to move on to like hands, tongue and foot movements, which they couldn't detect a response. And on the 86th day of trying all that stuff, they're like, okay, uh, let's try to have him match the frequency feedback. And it only took him, what, 12 days before he was able to do that. Yeah, like the first day Um, he made a huge amount of progress, and then by the 12th day he had locked it in. Yeah, and uh, so it was like the 86th day is when they first attempted that, and he, he, you know, they saw a ton of uh, feedback. 98th day, he was able to match the frequency feedback. And then by the 106th day, he was able to select letters and to free spell things, Mm -hmm. which is an incredibly fast, like that only took them another, hold on, I'm not good at math. (laughs) What is 90, what is 106 minus 98? Is that eight? Eight. Yeah, so it only took him eight more days Mm -hmm. (laughs) from being able to match a frequency to being able to spell and communicate which is insane so that's that's cool but then you once you get into this like actual research or you're like okay well maybe there's uh some other things going on here with this guy yeah the uh the two researchers from germany they're doing this study now but both of them had been on probation one for five years and one for three years from doing any sort of scientific publication work or research work because they had been accused um, by the, I guess, what the German Academy of Sciences, I guess. Well, there was a whistleblower at, I think, the University of, of course, I know how to pronounce this word, Tübingen. <laughs> we all know that university mm-hmm. in Germany. <clears throat> and yeah, it went to the uh, Germany's top research funding institute. Uh, they started investigating him. Yeah, and so uh, basically they found that, or they uh, ruled that they had at least falsified some results in previous studies, and that they had not been, uh, or or they had also like thrown out information from different trials too that didn't necessarily prove their hypothesis, which is what the whistleblower was talking about. Um, and as a result, the the German Academy like was pretty harshly handing them down sentences to where they could not actually practice science for all, half a decade. <laughs> yeah, well, the the like specific things that uh, were were noted. So, like falsifying data, it starts to get very complicated. And I'm not the best person to speak about this. This is probably something that like Justin would um, be able to school us on. Uh, in a nice way, I'm sure. Uh, but like falsifying data, it sounds like m- just making up results. Right. But when 
when you're talking about like research and especially research that is involving humans, um, it's like using selective data. So like you're saying, choosing the data that you want to represent your hypothesis or back back it yeah. and get the kind of results you want and throwing out stuff that's like, so like for example in this, it would be they test all of these different patients and um, say out of five patients, one of them has like very poor feedback on like the yes or no, which is what this study was, was that they got in trouble for was talking about. And so you just like, don't even talk about that, mm-hmm. that patient. Cause you're just like, well, they don't know how to do it. These other four know how to do it. So that proves that we know what we're doing. So that's like the selective data. Then they had a lack of disclosure of data. So they had, and, and data scripts. So they had, um, like the logs of all of their, their data that they received. And they said that they did this trial for this many, this many takes, but they only presented in the paper, like, like two thirds of those. Right. Um, and then whenever they requested the data, they like didn't present the full data. Um, so then they also had missing data and possible, uh, corruption due to incorrect analysis. And I was reading an article of somebody who, who talks about like research, uh, statistics and stuff. And it appears that the, when they were showing their results, they averaged the data over all of the trials and then over all sessions performed a t-test on those averages and um i hated statistics but i know enough to understand that when when you're like averaging and then averaging and then you're testing the results <laughs> it is like way different than <laughs> the individual trials <laughs> look over a long enough time scale <laughs> we, we can make yeah, these exactly. averages all come back to zero <clears throat> yeah, that that and so um, I thought the uh, the takes from the other scientists who follow their work, like in America, and were like, "Yeah, this is promising," but we're taking it all with a big grain of salt because these guys have not the greatest reputation. And then also like them saying, other scientists saying, "Yes, I, you know, this is probably ap- uh, absolutely accurate in this one singular patient's experience in this in this study." But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is reproducible in other patients or that it is some sort of uh, uh, litmus test for a whole cohort of patients who might have similar results. And that that's sort of like the big uh, grain of salt deal here is uh, one, like I said, he no longer is able to communicate. The guy is no longer able to communicate this the the all the progress that was made is now over the electrodes deteriorated is what they believe happened not that he lost the ability to move to imaginarily move his eyes but then you also have the question it could be that he did lose the ability to do it i you know there's i I don't know like how there's a lot of still studies on like how als affects the brain and other things and if it's strictly just all of your motor functions or does it slowly deteriorate the actual synaptic firing in your brain and you know you're slowly going dark as different parts of your brain no longer work anymore um so there, there's a lot of open-ended questions. The result is very interesting in that because at, heretofore there had never been a um, 
previous example of someone who had reached a fully locked in paralytic state that was able to communicate like we've never been able to get inside the head of a person in a coma or in a vegetative state or anything like that. We've been able to be like, oh, look, look at the brain monitor. There is some electrical activity going on in there, even though they're not able to squeeze their hand or do anything. We know that there's some brain activity, but we've never had like an actual give and take. And the breakthrough was that this was the first time that they had actually sort of gotten into that person's head. But since the breakthrough, he's, we're no longer able to communicate with that individual anymore either. Yeah. When you, I, I, I would suggest if it's somebody's like skeptical of, um, thinking that the results would be, uh, a little fishy, I suggest they like look at the, the studies and the previous studies to understand like the it's not that we know he is saying i want beer or whatever Mm -hmm. like the headline grabbing one was um it's not that we are beyond a doubt certain he chose the letter i it's that in the research they had an electrical frequency um, that was uh, peaked at a certain point a little bit more than like any of the other possible letters or background noise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they interpret that as the letter I. So that's why it's it's a little, um, uh, everybody's looking at it with kind of a sideways glance because it is possible that, no, they were just choosing background noise that really uh, supported Oh, this guy's communicating. And I, I, the, my uh, fishy radar went up when uh, they said, like, the second thing that he said was, I want to thank Dr. Birnbaum and Niels for doing, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if the first time I've been able to communicate my whole for in forever because I've been in a paralyzed state. I don't know if the second thing I'm going to say is just, I would like to extrapolate and express my gratitude on these two doctors who've been doing this research. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a little strange. The um and the other thing too with like why they were handed such uh harsh punishments is because their original like study um whenever you're doing stuff with humans uh if you say you have a breakthrough and then it comes out that there might have been some fishy uh statistical stuff going on like your disrupting the lives of patients and families like at at such a large scale mm-hmm. um that it it is um you know it's it they're ta- the german board is like taking into account all of the emotional uh you know you could say trauma and everything that yeah. people are needing to go through because like my uh, i know somebody that uh their son um has uh i believe cerebral palsy and like 15 years ago uh doctors were telling them like yeah the way stem cell research is going it's like by the time uh that your kid turns 20 it's it's going to be like reversed and then you get uh uh you know not great studies coming back like not it's not advancing that fast but then you also get the politics involved of um, right-wingers that are against stem cell research. And now it is it is probably farther back than it was 15 years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. 
like the, um, the promises so- that I had in, uh, in back in like 2007 when I first got diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa of like, you know, you got this. If anything, you're just born at the right time. Just know that, you know, less than a decade, it's going to be like artificial eyes, stem cells and genetic therapy. And it's right around the corner. And now it's 2022 and like it's, it's none, none of it's happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like w- there's Listen, been a lot Josh. of research. <laughs> we've done a, we've done a lot of research. We've got a lot of grants to do a lot of research. <laughs> there's still oil in the ground that we would like to focus on first. <laughs> Let's go back to whale blubber. That's what I say. It, it was a more efficient lubricant. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> oh, oil. Okay, I gotcha. <clears throat> Sorry, I thought we were working blue. Um. <clears throat> anyway, so that those were the uh, the two interesting brain augmentation stories that have been popping up recently. That you know, you see like the the all the pop side takes and the headlines of of everything, and maybe you know just just those times when you see when science becomes part of a popular journalistic literature that's the time when you need to take do a microscope and see what they were really talking about (laughs) because there's a lot of promises in those in those pop science articles that do not reflect anything that was inside of the actual research when there are more than five 10k plus twitter accounts tweeting about the exact same thing at the same time it's probably not cracked up to the same right (laughs) uh scientific rigor of something else you know what i realized too you sent me these um, like earlier in the week, I think, and uh, it made me realize I don't follow any scientific accounts. Yeah. <laughs> and I imagine that's like half of your follow list. Yeah, that's pretty much like half the people I follow is just different scientists, different labs, just different things. <laughs> like I, we've been doing this thing for we know now over two years and uh, yeah, I've just... Can't can't be uh can't be uh pushed into following anybody. <laughs> Look, you you just you uh don't want to be informed or you biased by a bunch of outside, you know, voices when it comes exactly. to your science evaluations. I want a clean slate on my understanding of what's going on in the world. Poor you know, torture. I'm the only one at home. Poor only torture. one at home, so I've got the door open. Just so that way they can freely go. And now, look. It's like, close the door. <clears throat> Let's see. This is at 101. So, listener, you're not even going to know what we're talking about. I'm going to take this bad boy out. <clears throat> um, the uh, So, th- the the last topic, which I sent you over on uh, Neuroscience, Neuroscience Week, uh, was a study about the perceived temporal changes based upon different types of visual stimulation. And this was the first real like in-depth study where I, that I had seen, cause we had talked about this back with our brain episode about how like time slows down based upon the amount of information that your brain is taking in, especially through your visual spectrum. And, you know, I gave the example of, when I was in a car wreck when I was 16 and how like everything slowed down and I can remember like all of the events that happened even though the collision was milliseconds 
Like in mm-hmm. my mind, it's like this extremely like long period of time where I I was experiencing that moment as my brain just like sucked in all the information in this high impact scenario. Um, and that, that has been like a perceived time dilation type of thing that is across a lot of things, just from a lot of anecdotal experience we talked about with like baseball players. And we talked about with like lots of other things and just sort of how that gives credence to the idea that the brain is a prediction machine and that, going through your everyday life, it's just always trying to predict a few seconds ahead of what's going to happen so that you feel like you're having this smooth sort of temporal experience all the time. And you feel this agency, like you're in control of things that are going on when it's really just your brain is trying to guess what's about to happen in the future. And when, um, a whole, uh, a whole lot of events happen and you get a whole lot of stimulation all at once, then that prediction machine doesn't necessarily know what to do think is going to happen next so then it really starts to soak in information like a sponge to try to help it predict the next thing to keep you safe and that's when you get these incredible time dilation things and so that's always been sort of this hypothesized way that things work but this is a study that actually tried to measure that and see if there was results and the results were pretty compelling that it was a confirmation of those of those assumptions yeah, so they the thing that they really focus on in this paper and the thing that probably took me the longest time to get through because I didn't know what they were talking about is using a asemantic visual features mm-hmm. uh to alter human time perception uh, at the interval level. So that's a word salad that uh made no sense to me the first time I read it and what it essentially means is they want to look at uh, changing like objective visual features. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes uh, things like how high of contrast there is between uh, different objects and different colors, um, the spatial frequency. So can you really tell the different, like how wide of a band of color is there between a different high contrast color versus a bunch of, you know, where it's almost the same color because the black and white is so smashed together. Mm -hmm. Um, Then they have a field of view, which, um, you know, I think people who like play video games understand this one, but that just means how much more, how, how wide is your, viewpoints in a smaller section of visual area (laughs) right and that's the reason why i originally read this paper because like my field of view is less than eight degrees from because of Mm -hmm. retinitis pigmentosa and so i was interested in the uh is there like some sort of natural time dilation that I experience that other people don't experience? Cause I'm always looking through the world in this very narrow field of view. And then they're talking about the one they're studying is like 45 to 65 degrees. And I'm like, people can see that. <laughs> yeah. Well they, and, like, and they also, and they're like, that's they, how we narrowed that. We narrowed their field of view. And I'm like, Whoa, that's narrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they also uh, cranked it up too, where like you're you can see almost behind you on some stuff too, um, and then visual complexity. So 
how difficult is what you're looking at affecting um, your understanding of time? And then the next part of that sentence, uh, they're like what they're wanting to answer is human time perception at the interval level. So they had previously, well, there were previous studies done that changing these sorts of things um, affect people's judgment of time, like these types of of features, affects people's judge of time on the millisecond level, um, but which I don't understand how you study that because how am I count? I'm not counting milliseconds ever. I, well, I think that's part of the point is because they put it in a, a function of interval that you couldn't count, that no one could trick the system yeah. by counting it. And so the interval level now for this study is like multiple seconds long or, or minutes long. Mm-hmm. Like an interval is an amount of time that you can conceivably track, uh, and the final thing that I wanted to note was the things that they've understood to manipulate interval time points for humans um, are semantic features, uh, semantic visual features. But those are things that are like emotions, like the emotional state of somebody mm-hmm. or showing content that is sad or funny or violent or varying or what? Violent. Like the violence yeah. one was the interesting too, like adding things that could also cause an emotional traumatic response in the person from the visual perception can also dilute time. And so they were trying to re- eliminate that emotional noise out of the right. out of the study. Another one was like varying task difficulty. So asking them to solve like a two dimensional or three dimensional puzzle um, or asking them to notice the changes in illumination of a scene due to the position of the sun. So even things that are like like hardwired into us that are um you know super animalistic like understanding the point of the sun in the sky and what that is doing with our internal mechanisms mm-hmm. um that is one that they wanted to get rid of because that is that is uh subjective to the person, you know, yeah, what if your circadian rhythm bias. <laughs> Right, exactly. So so it's not even it's not just like emotions like did I have a good day or bad day? But the reason that they're making these things so objective in this study is because you cannot uh you can't balance out people to make sure they all had the same experience driving into the lab to be mm-hmm. uh tested. You can't make sure that like all of their family members are uh, doing doing okay <laughs> right you know or um, or does this person like overly anxious so they're constantly thinking of all the ways that everything's about to go wrong and thus their mind has these extra levels of distraction that changes their perception versus a person who just is chill to the bone man i don't give a fuck what's going on <laughs> type of type of guy right and this is the part of like scientific studies that I would absolutely hate doing. I would hate to think of how can I make this the most the most, you know, objective point of view. God, that would be so tiring. And then and then then you have to express it mathematically. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You're like I can think I can think intuitively 
and conceptually about ways that I need to unbias this cohort or this group in this study. But in the, the, the question to get me to like then quantify that through statistics and mathematics that I can use formula formulas to show that I eliminated the bias. Now we're talking where I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll let, I'll let someone else do it. Yeah. <laughs> Undergrad, would you like some, uh, credit? Yeah. Um, so the, let's see, I'm trying to, trying to figure out so I, the thing is I wrote their abstract out and then like each different point in the abstract, I, I wrote my notes under that because, you know, that's what an abstract is. Mm-hmm. It sums up the entire paper essentially, but goodness, there was a lot. Um, what they were going off of too in like uh, wanting to, the reason that they're wanting to figure this stuff out is... Um, you know, maybe there's farther reaching applications to it, but there has been some research that has shown, um, fairly strongly that, uh, like patients going through chemotherapy or dealing with fatigue or something like that after, you know, an operation, if they're given like a VR headset, uh, or shown something visually that is designed to do uh, this exact sort of study, um, stuff, it can ease their pain or ease their, the amount of time that they're dealing with it. Like if you know anyone who's gone through chemotherapy, that means you're going there and sitting in a chair and they're pumping you full of chemicals. Um, and it's Mm -hmm. just boring and it feels like it takes forever because it does take forever. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, so they've put on VR headsets of like, uh, people going through breast cancer chemotherapy and then other people going through lung cancer chemotherapy and the breast cancer chemotherapy patients um, had a much stronger reaction to feeling like the time was shorter based off of wearing the VR headset compared to uh, lung cancer patients. But I think they also had some time compression stuff, but anyways, it is, it's to make time feel like it's going by faster Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which is pretty remarkable. Like I could see applications e- directly going into like dialysis patients because you got to do that like what twice a week, yeah, or something. Oh, and this this has like direct kind of sci-fi applications too. Like yeah, you see this stuff done in sci-fi movies when they have to go you know into hibernation sleep to go long distances and space journeys. But the idea is that they're also uh, there's shows that have showed like uh, they give you these sort of mental movies type of type of experience that is like a a conglomeration of like your past history of your life on earth and all these other things and they basically the idea is to make it seem like it's a much shorter journey um so this has been played with in lots of uh different formats before but never like actually done on a scientific real study level i don't think yeah that didn't that um Raised by Wolves show. Yes. Wasn't that kind of one? Yes. That did in their it? pods, um, in their hibernation pods, they had like a, the, the visual representations of past earth and things like that. Yeah. I, I, sorry to say I, I stopped watching that show <laughs> about halfway through <laughs> season one. <clears throat> I just, anything based on child actors, it's difficult for me. 
you know. These kids can't act. <laughs> they really can't. <laughs> uh, so the main experiments, they had like three main experiments. Um, experiment one was uh, testing the difference in the magnitude of luminance contrast. Um, so that's like the contrast mm. of colors. Uh, temporal frequency, so how quickly you're cutting between scenes and field of view to affect the time perception using 30-second increments. And what they did um, in this one compared to other studies that were testing the same thing but and using like the same kind of uh, metric or whatever is they would ask people uh, in other studies to recall, like remember how long it felt. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you, that. I feel like that shouldn't even be a... Published yeah. study, like. and we talked about the, those types of studies before in the old brain episodes too, about like how um, old people. It the only real like correlative type of thing from those studies that's come across is that like young people have a much more accurate representation of time versus old people, and especially young people always overestimate to think things are like taking way longer, and like at, the older you get, the 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 uh the the less accurate you're able to say how how long a minute has passed but that's kind yeah. of the only thing that has ever really been done and then you're it's very arbitrary because you're asking people to get has it been a minute <laughs> and like, right uh, <laughs> i think it's been one minute and five seconds <laughs> yeah they it's that reminds me the the Japanese show that tested different theories. They did do they got people in different age ranges, like uh in their twenties and then forties, uh sixties and eighties, I think, and put them in a room in a warehouse, um, and just told them come out after twenty four hours. And uh yeah, I think like the person in their 20s was like came out at like 22 hours i think the person in their 60s came out at like exactly at 24 hours the person in their 80s i think they didn't come out until it was like almost 70 hours yeah <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> like, almost three days and you think like, that's ah, it's one probably day. been a day i don't know <laughs> i'm old time like yeah. a one minute to me is is a very is is a is a very small amount of time versus what one minute is to like a five-year-old. That's like a huge, huge percentage of their life versus one minute to an 80-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't know. It's, uh, that was a weird one. But they, so they, this one, they told the people we're going to be studying uh, how long you think time passed. And then we're going to ask you at the halfway point, tell a, like, press this button to tell us that we're halfway between yeah whatever um so in this first experiment they did all those different like quick cuts between things and they tested out like if cutting between things uh quicker causes you to have to think that it takes longer or whatever um i i didn't get like into the results as deeply as i think it sounds like you did so like i um, like having a larger field of view, I know caused 55% more, um, like longer amount of time. People thought that 15 seconds had passed when really 16 and a half seconds had passed. Right. Um, but like, I don't understand which 
way the other things were, like with contrast and stuff like that. So you thought you would think that the duration of things was happening. You thought that the time was longer when it was actually short if you have low frequency, low field of view, low contrast. If you have high frequency, high field of view, high contrast, you think that the time was shorter than it actually was. So it's the opposite of the car. You're right. It's the opposite of the car crash example. Which is like strange. So then, I mean, it, it makes your brain like, then it almost is like, well, what is the emotional aspect of going through a car crash? Because obviously your, your emotions aren't uh, flooding your, your bloodstream with like adrenaline fast enough throughout the, like your heart's racing after the car crash, not during it. So it is almost like, what is your brain doing to like replicate all of this stuff? I don't know. It's, it's a weird one for me. Well, um, it's, it's another, uh, I think the main part of the study is like what we talked about at the beginning, when you're trying to unbias the study from all the other stimuli on the brain and you're trying to limit it to just a visual abstract representation that is objective and has no subjective implication, um, it makes it, it's it's why uh, trying to recreate uh, an artificial brain in a computer is not necessarily uh, the correct analog of thinking of a brain as a bunch of ones and zeros like we think of a computer. Um, the the everything the everything is somehow interconnected and it's hard to separate from anyone's subjective experience what all their priors and biases are even if you just show them a peaceful scene of a field and and like a panoramic view that that might elicit different types of responses and different types of individuals which is what they're trying to zero out to try to get like a a baseline of knowing how this works but the uh yeah, I guess that's the that's the main the main takeaway is that um, the higher the frequency of flashes of the images, the higher the contrast and the higher the field of view, the more likely it is for an individual to underestimate the amount of time that has passed. And the lower the contrast, the lower the frequency of images and the lower field of view, the more tunnel vision they made you, the more an individual is likely to overestimate the amount of time that has passed. So this is, um, this is where those, uh, right wing psychos are going to be like, how can we make solitary confinement even worse? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's, I, we could put, we can put the headset on a person. We could figure out, we could put a headset on a person that makes it feel they're only in the headset for five minutes, but it makes them feel like they did a lifetime bid. Yeah. <laughs> or the, yeah, yeah that, like the black mirror where they have the consciousness it's like uh it's like siri but siri like has consciousness you know and so like it's a it's a smart home and the guy basically punishes his ai and by by turning it off but every time like it's turned off it feels like it's spending eternity like locked inside of a <laughs> inside of a cell like Jeez. that consciousness feels like it's locked away in solitary confinement and so every time you, he turns it back on it's kind of like for him only like a couple minutes have gone by but for the for the ai consciousness it's 
lived lifetimes of, of isolation. <laughs> yeah, that I can't remember. Um, wasn't there like some chemical people were like talking about like 10 years ago that they were saying, oh, yeah, we could make somebody feel like they did 10 years in prison. It's like, can't you just maybe figure out how to like have them go through therapy? Like what? the the interest in turning these things into punishment is such a a weird twist uh for a ton of people um but you know that's that's neither here nor there yeah and i the, i thought one of the funny thing the last thing i had on the study where they were like and not just applications for uh for people who are going through chemotherapy and other or going through surgery or rehab or things like that this could be very practical for people who are just like waiting for a train. We could make it seem like they're waiting less time for a train and that would make their lives better. I'm thinking like how many people are going to the subway being like, man, if I could just like turn my brain off and make this three minutes seem like one minute and 50 seconds, I'd be happier. (laughs) I don't know. That was the weird, that was the weird practical application that they were like, look, everyone's going to be using this because everyone hates waiting for the subway. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I remember like taking the train or I took the, the, whatever you call it, like the, not train, but the on street one, you know, like a light rail or whatever yeah, yeah, you would yeah. call it. A trolley. I would take that to work. Yeah. Trolley-ish. Um, and I would just be standing there like the, the thing that helps make people not feel like they're waiting forever at public transit is having something up there that shows you how many minutes away the thing is. But that only goes so far uh, because it would say like, you know, arriving in one minute and then that would just pass. And then it would say arriving in 11 minutes, like the next train would be coming. And it's like nothing came by. (laughs) So uh, I don't know. It was nice living in Tokyo where uh, the train literally comes like if they are, 15 seconds off of the time of when it's supposed to arrive they uh profusely apologize to all of the passengers for being late (laughs) oh well at least they have like uh niceties is that like uh still is like one of the positive offshoots of like an honor culture where uh they they respect everyone's time so much that they feel that they must apologize to them to not dishonor them i don't know if it's that aspect of a holdover or what because there's probably other cultures that their public transit isn't as uh, up to snuff that had um some honor sort of stuff in their past but i think the the main thing is like you you could not have a functioning city <laughs> yeah if they were taking that long like tokyo would fall apart if if things were not like regimented on time um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. My uh, Miho's grandfather was like a bus driver um, for a time. Or well, he was a truck driver and then he got married and uh, his wife didn't like him uh, hanging out with all the truck drivers as much because truck drivers are kind of rough and tumble in, to- in Japan. So he became a bus driver. But that was back before they had uh, heaters in the buses. So everybody would just carry around a bottle of sake that they would uh, drink out of <laughs> while driving the bus. <clears throat> the uh, 
I the the one thing on this that I don't know if it's directly a corollary in their conclusion on this study was that because they feel that they really did a good job of uh, removing all of the emotional semantic bias from the study, they obviously conclude that they believe that uh, the in the real world, they can create interval scale time perception um, for people in a totally asemantic way to create these changes um, so people can perceive time differently in real world applications. But again, I, I don't know if you can totally separate the semantic from the asemantic nature of an individual's brain when they put on a VR headset. And even if you've think that you've got the most benign non-biased set of visual images i i just that that, that see, all that seems so culturally dependent and so uh a priori different to every single individual's case study that i don't know how you could necessarily say that any you could come up with a perfect application that takes removes the emotion out of it for anyone who might view any of these videos in order to try to make time seem like it went by slower. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, I guess visiting a new city, it does feel like for a time you kind of your time is a little bit slower, I suppose. I don't know. I, the only thing I'm considering is like if you play a new video game. Like yeah. You can kind of do that for a long time, but not realize it. Or like if, uh, you know, a Marvel movie, like the, the Marvel movies are all really long, you know, like Thor yeah. and all those. But is it, can kids sit there and enjoy those and be able to sit there and take in like a two and a half hour movie because it is so so overly visually stimulating and incredibly high contrast, incredibly high frequency of the cuts between all the shots and stuff like that, does it make it seem like that movie is overall much more digestible and shorter in length to a kid who's in that audience versus if you made them sit down and watch Schindler's List that's all black and white and slow and dialogue even though the movie even though Schindler's List might actually be shorter than than <laughs> Endgame like does a kid's experience because of the visual stimulation make them seem more rapt of attention and seem like that movie is shorter so that they can digest it versus the other one. Not necessarily the emotional content of the movie. Is it strictly just the visual representation of the movie that's giving them that experience separate from the emotional content of the movie? That would be an interesting way of trying to study it. I don't know if you, how, how you could actually then still experience this effect while all the emotions are still being flooded in at the same time. So are you requesting any listener with children to make them sit their kid down and watch yeah. Schindler's List they this weekend? Watch both movies, watch Endgame and Schindler's List, and then ask your kid at either the 45% point or the 55% point on the movie whether they think they're um, at halfway through, under halfway through, or over halfway through. And depending on what their answers are, we'll know if they think uh, Schindler's List is longer than Endgame. Yeah. 
uh, and you'll be a co-author on this paper. There we go. You you could get billions of dollars from the federal government de- defense department as well. <laughs> <laughs> and BlackRock Technologies, they'll help you out. <laughs> <clears throat> all right, that's all I got, Eric. I think we did a good job. We did a fantastic job. Until next Talk week. Talk to you next week. Bye.